Let me give you some announcements for some things that are coming up, and then we'll uh, pick up where we left off on page 9 in our series. Just a couple of things that are on the calendar coming up within the next couple of weeks for you to make note of. One is the Mud Hens game we do every year. Uh, we go to uh, 5th, 3rd Field in Toledo for Toledo Mud Hens game. We always have a good time. We have a section reserved for ourselves, so we're all not by each other. And uh, there's a fireworks display afterwards on Friday night, August the 2nd. The tickets are $9 each. You can purchase those in the Resource Center, which is just out that door and across the hall. And I encourage you to do that uh, today if you haven't done so. And then Vacation Bible School, very first one we've ever been able to have because now we have our own facility. That's going to be in the evenings, Monday through Friday, August the 5th through the 9th. And we have been blessed with an abundance of folks who have stepped up and said they want to help with that, volunteer. So we're staffed fully, uh, as far as I know. So just uh, be aware of it. And if you have children or grandchildren or neighborhood children, uh, let them know about it and uh, pre-register them, if you would. You can pre-register by seeing the information desk out in the foyer or online at our website, CBC Trenton. Dot com and then slash Kingdom Chronicles. That's the theme and the material we're using, uh, the curriculum we're using, Kingdom Chronicles. So cbctrenton.com slash Kingdom Chronicles. That's listed in your bulletin today. All right, this is our fifth week in this series, When We Have to Choose. You see that on the screen. And we have thus far seen that when we make choices, one of the most crucial things for us to know is the end toward which these decisions, small and large, are moving us. The end toward which. To put it another way, we need to know our purpose, our objective. So we call that beginning with the end in mind. So as we make choices about allocation of our time and our, our treasure and the use of our talents... We need to make those decisions in a way that advances the purpose, the objective, the mission. I'm using those synonymously that God has given to us. So if that's true, if our decisions need to be made consistent with and in light of our purpose, then we've got to know what that purpose is. We've got to know what the mission is, what the objectives are. And we've spent the last few weeks then looking at that. Now, if you've not been able to be with us for any of these weeks, uh, if you've missed any, the recordings are at our website, cbctrenton.com. So you've got the notes. I encourage you to listen to those, and then that will catch you up. I can't go through all of that, but I'll just briefly say that we've been looking at the fact that when Jesus completed his earthly ministry and he returned back to the Father, he gave final instructions to his first followers. And those final instructions we know as the Great Commission. That's what we call it. So Jesus says at the end of Matthew chapter 28 to go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you, and I'm with you even to the very end of the age. Jesus gives that same instruction as recorded by Luke in Luke chapter 24, the final chapter of Luke. And Luke fills in some details for us that Matthew did not. Luke says that Jesus told those first followers, stay in the city, Jerusalem, until you receive the power to begin this mission. 
And this mission is going to consist of preaching, proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations. So last week we, we put that together and we saw how after Jesus ascended back to the Father that his first followers did as Jesus instructed. They stayed in Jerusalem. They waited for the power that Jesus promised to begin this mission to proclaim repentance, forgiveness of sins, to baptize these disciples in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So next time we find them is the book of Acts, fifth book in your Bible. And in the second chapter of Acts, the Bible says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were together in one place in Jerusalem. And the reason they were in this one place in Jerusalem is because Jesus had said to, go to Jerusalem and wait. They're waiting for the power the Bible tells us they received the power of, in the form of the, the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in tongues that they had not learned because Luke who wrote Acts tells us that there in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost there were people from every nation under heaven. That's the phrase he uses. So this is going to be a mission that's going to begin in Jerusalem, but it's going to go to all nations. And to signify that it's going to be for all nations, they speak in the languages of those nations. So the mission Jesus gave is now starting, Acts chapter 2. And then I took pains to point out last week that not only does the Great Commission start in Acts chapter 2, but something else extremely important for the rest of Scripture starts in Acts chapter 2 as well, namely the church. The church began on the day of Pentecost simultaneous with the beginning of the Great Commission. And that's proven by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is what brings one into the body of, body of Christ. And the, that happened for the first time in, in Acts chapter 2. And so the Great Commission, the church, both begin at precisely the same time. And last week we saw that they not only began at the same time, they advanced together. So the mission goes forward as the church goes forward. The mission is carried out through the agency of the church. God has chosen the church to be the vehicle through which he is accomplishing his ultimate purpose for all time and in all places, namely to bring glory to himself. That has happened at different times in different ways in history. But at this time, in this age, Scripture tells us that it's occurring through the agency of the church. That's what we saw last week. So if the Great Commission is going to go forward, it's going to go forward through and by the church. The mission of the church is the Great Commission. They are inseparable. They started at the same time, and they move forward together. Now, that's my attempt to tell you the end. Beginning with the end in mind, as we make choices in our lives, we need to step back, look at Scripture, and say, what purpose, what mission, what objective has God given to us in this age? And the Bible spilled a lot of ink telling us that it's the mission Jesus gave carried out through His, His church. Now, if that's the end, then we begin with that end in mind. And as you make choices in your life and I make choices in my life, we then, if we're going to make God-honoring choices, make them around advancing that purpose. So page 9. When Paul wrote to the congregation at a city called Philippi, he commended 
that congregation of believers for their commitment to the biblical mission in these words. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until, until now. So, Paul, who wrote to the city of Philippi and the believers gathered in the church there, a city that he had visited. You can read about his visit to Philippi in Acts chapter 16. He plants the church there. He starts the church, and now he's writing back to the church. And he's saying, you know, I remember you all. I remember you all fondly. And when I pray for you, I thank God for you in view of, because of your participation with me in the, in the gospel. Now, here's what I want you to see about that. That next paragraph says the Greek word for sometimes translated partnership or participation is a Greek word that some of you have heard, koinonia. It's often translated fellowship. So the King James Version actually says there, if you have a King James Version, you know, I thank God because of your fellowship in the gospel. But when it says fellowship, it's referring to their participation, their partnership. Now, we have a tendency to think of fellowship as food, right? So we will think of it as a potluck. And certainly, those are times, picnics and events that we're able to have are times for us to celebrate our oneness, our togetherness. But that oneness and togetherness that we celebrate at a picnic is not just we're a bunch of people who have common interests in, in gaining weight, <laughs> okay? But rather, we're, we're celebrating, we're sharing these meals together, we're sharing laughs together, we're sharing life together because together we have a couple of very important things in common the same Lord and the same mission. And that's what the word koinonia means. It means to have in common. So we will sometimes say uh, to coin a phrase. You ever heard that? Or so, somebody has coined a phrase. What that means is they've, they've, they've established a phrase, used a phrase that became common. So you coin a phrase means to make it common. So koinonia refers to what we have in common, as we say in that third paragraph. In the middle there, in particular, we have in common our commitment to the same Lord and same purpose, namely the biblical mission. So each believer is called to use what God has given in order to achieve the purpose for which He gave it. So I wonder if you've thought about that. I wonder if you've thought about, this is my purpose, this is why God has me on earth, to be a participant in advancing His glory in His world through His church. That's what the New Testament teaches us. And we're all called, just like these common folk in Philippi, to be active participants in that. And if that's what I'm called to do, if that's what you're called to do, then I need to order my life around that. I need to prioritize that in the way I structure my life. Now, I said that these are common, ordinary folks in Philippi. I want to emphasize that because as much as those of us in this room would claim 
that we believe in the priesthood of the believer. You know what I mean by that? The priesthood of the believer means every believer in Jesus has equal standing before him. And there, aren't, there isn't a clergy-laity distinction that says the clergy are closer to God and have greater access to God than we do, than the, the congregation. Now, the Bible teaches that. We say we believe that. We say we believe that. But when it comes down to nitty-gritty practical stuff like ordering my life around the mission, we think that's what pastor slash priests do. Those guys do that. Not regular folks. But the people to whom Paul was writing in Philippi are regular folks. Just common, ordinary saints. And he's saying, you're partners in the gospel. And throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, we have that emphasis. If you'll take a look at Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. And I just want to show you that common, ordinary people were and were expected to be active and vital participants in the mission of the church. Romans 16, the final chapter of the letter to the church at Rome. Paul wrote this letter like he did 13 others in your New Testament. And he often ends his letters with benedictions, greetings to people in the place that he's writing to. And so here's an example of that. But you go to the end of many of his letters, he'll name people. And he'll thank those people for their partnership. So here's one example of that in Romans 16. He mentions in the first verse a sister named Phoebe. I ask you to receive her, verse 2, in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and give her any help she may need from you. For she has been a great help to many people, including me. All right, now, Phoebe, okay, the sister in the Lord. Is she a pastor? The answer is no. Is she some particular hot shot within the church? She's a regular gal within the church that we know very little about, other than Paul says she's been a great help to me. He mentions in verse 3 Priscilla and Aquila, this husband and wife combination that we do read about in the book of Acts and some of the things that they did. But these, again, were just regular Christian people who opened up their home to Paul and others in order to advance the mission. It says in verse 4, they risk their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Do you see that these regular folks saw their time, their gifts, their treasure, including their home, as means to advance the mission through the church? The church met at their place. Greet my dear friend, verse 5. Aponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Andronicus and Junius, my relatives who have been in prison with me. They're outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. 
Greet Ampliatus, whom I love in the Lord, Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my dear friend, Stachys. Greet Apelles, tested and approved in Christ. Greet all those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my relative. Greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. My dear friend Persis, another woman who's worked very hard in the Lord. Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who's been a mother to me too. And he goes on to mention these people, and here's one of the things about these folk. We don't know who they are. There's just a few of them. We have any idea who they are. Priscilla and Aquila, we read about in the book of Acts. The rest of these, we don't know who they are other than what Paul says in commending them about their active work in partnering in the advance of of the mission. Some of them risking their lives, opening their homes. The mission was their mission. And they did it together. Goes on to say this. I just want to point out uh, a few more. Go over to verse 22. I, Tertius, wrote down this letter, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now, this is a letter from Paul, but Paul often had someone to whom he dictated, and in this case, he dictated to somebody named Tertius. And Tertius says, in addition to all these other people, I send my greetings as well. And then, if you look down in verse 23, middle of verse 23, Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus send you their greetings. Okay, so Tertius is writing. He sends his greetings, and he also sends greetings on behalf of somebody named Quartus. Tertius and Quartus. And those are Latin names which just mean three and four. Tertius means three. And Quartus, quarterly, four times a year, it means four. So greetings from number three and number four. Why do these guys not have names? It's probably because they had been Roman slaves. And their names were numbers, three and four. Now, dear friends, do you get the idea that just regular people were involved and heavily involved and crucially and vitally involved? in seeing the mission through God's church move forward. So if you have that idea, whether explicitly or implicitly, in your mind, that the mission moves forward by paid superstars, nothing could be further than what, from what the New Testament teaches. So back to page 9 then. Paul commends the regular folks at Philippi for their participation, partnership, fellowship, koinonia in the mission. Fourth paragraph, this begins with an individual's commitment to the gospel itself. One cannot participate in the mission until they first participate in the gospel. Only by coming to Christ for salvation from our sins, abandoning our own efforts and hopes, can we enter the gospel of Christ and begin to live a life on mission. And so the middle box there, have you participated in the gospel by turning to Jesus for salvation from your sin? I know most of you here. And I know that's the case for most of you. For any of you for whom you don't know or that's not the case, life begins there. Life literally begins there. And then life on mission begins there. And so I would love to sit down and talk to you about that. Call me this week or send me an email and we'll set a time to talk about your relationship with the Lord.
The next to that box says the church is supposed to be a group of people who participate together in the mission. Therefore, individual believers must come to view themselves as active participants in the Great Commission rather than spectators. So if I want to know how to make God-honoring choices in my life, I've got to begin with the end in mind. And what is the end? It is the advance of God's glory through the mission that he's carrying out through his church. And the New Testament is very clear that this involves just regular folks like us using what God has given to advance his purpose. But that requires a mindset change in our churches, doesn't it? Because it's very easy for us to become spectators and for us to get our attention on other things and give ourselves and prioritize other things to and prioritize other things rather than the mission. And so we have a couple of quotes here for you that emphasize this need for a change of perspective within our churches. Perhaps the greatest single weakness of the contemporary Christian church is that millions of supposed members are not really involved at all, and what is worse, they do not think it strange that they are not. Because we've, we've come to believe that church is just a place I go. It's not a mission in which I'm engaged. Or the majority of Christians stand at the edge of the path of obedience waiting for more information. Still trying to figure this out. Is this really what I'm supposed to be doing? And we spend decades trying to, trying to figure it out. But in light of Christ's unequivocal command, the issue is not more information, but rather obedience. He has given to his followers to the end of the age the Great Commission. The Great Commission advances through the institution that he has created, the church, in order to carry it forward. And he's called each of us to actively participate in that. So in order to move page 9. From a spectator mentality to active duty, believers will need to begin asking some probing questions. Do I view my gifts and abilities as resources to serve my church? Am I building my life around the church or the church around my life? Are my leaders doing their job or mine? Now, you look at those, those questions, those are convicting questions. Maybe they're questions that are completely foreign to you. I have a footnote next to those, footnote number six, that's taken from an article in that magazine, Sovereign Grace magazine. So that's another pastor asking those questions, and I'm quoting him. But I, I'm quoting him because I think they're excellent questions. And so they're questions for you and for, and for me. In order to move from a spectator mentality, we have to begin by asking these probing, probing questions. Now, practically speaking, what does that mean? It means that if it is true that God has given us a mission, and if it is true that God has determined that that mission is to be carried out through His church, then as we make decisions about our lives, small and great, we need to make them with the end in mind. And we need to ask ourselves, does this decision advance the mission? In every decision, does this decision advance the mission? And we need to ask ourselves these kinds of probing questions. Am I building my life around the church or the church around my life? 
practically what's that look like? The one approach that says I'm building the church around my life goes like this. I decide the stuff I like to do. I put my time and my talent and my treasure into those things I like to do. I just pursue the stuff I like to do. As long as it's not sinful stuff, then I'll glorify God as I go. I'll do my leisure time and my activities and my hobbies and the stuff that I put my energies into. I'll do it as unto the Lord. And I'll schedule my life that way. I'll prioritize that stuff. I'll put my money into that stuff. I'll train for that stuff. Because I love that stuff. Because that's my stuff. And then there's, there's this church thing. And... I'll give a portion of what I'm about to that. God says something about giving. In the Old Testament, he said something about giving 10%. I'll get as close to that as I can. I'll come. I get built up because there are people there who are of like mind. They help me. I try to help them. I want that if I have kids. they got good kids programs, so I want that for my kids. But it's, now, now hear this, it is ancillary to my life, not central. It's an appendage to my life. It's an appendage to everything else I've got going on. That's someone who's building the church around their life. I'll build my life around the stuff that I just like to do, and I'll fit the church in around it. So when it comes to serving... I'll serve if I have time. But if I have time depends on all the other stuff I'm doing. And all the other stuff I'm doing is the stuff that I just like to do. It's not sinful stuff. I act like a Christian when I do it. But it's my stuff. Now that's somebody who's building the church around their life. What about somebody who's building their life around the mission of the church? That person first says, what gifts and abilities has God given me? And how can I sharpen those gifts and abilities to be as effective as I possibly can in the mission that God's carrying out through his church? How can I train for that? How can I look for opportunities for that? How can I free up my schedule to be available for that? When I look, the person who's committed to prioritizing the mission of the church and building their life around that, when they look at the bulletin and Pastor Matt is giving the events that are coming up, that's somebody who's actually paying attention. There are probably three of us. And I know what it's like to give the, to give the announcements and nobody's listening. But they're, the person's really listening. They're really looking at that stuff to see what are we doing to advance the mission. And how can I participate in that? So they are putting, building their time around that, their treasure around that, and also their gifts and abilities, their talents. And that's what the bottom of page 9 says. Ephesians chapter 4. Christ gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work 
of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building of, up of itself in love. Now, at the end there, I want you to see, the head is Christ, verse 16, from whom the whole body, that would be all of us, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part. What makes this body go? All of the joints and all of the individual parts. And what happens when some joints are not there, out of joint? What happens when the parts are not all functioning together? Then the body does not function as it ought. The body is not healthy. So when Paul writes that in Ephesians chapter 4, he's saying the body of Christ, just think of the body imagery. There are members. There are different parts of that. 1 Corinthians 12, hand and feet and eyes and all of that. And the assumption is that every last piece, every joint, every part does its part. Now how different is that? Top of page 10. That's Paul's vision for the church and its members. But that's different from that of the average believer in our day. Notice this quotation. We sit on Sunday as if at a dentist's office and we say to the pastor, what are you going to do? But that's not his role. You see, your tithe isn't paying him to do your job. Your job description's already been defined. Instead of monopolizing ministry himself, writes John Stott, he actually multiplies ministries. Your pastor exists to equip you, to prepare you for works of service. The church isn't a place where others are obligated to meet your needs. The church is a place where you're equipped to serve others. A great church, as biblically defined, is a church, small or large, where the pastors are building humble, hardworking servants who gladly invest their gifts to build the local church. Remember our original definition of vision, and that is out of this article that I mentioned. It's a compelling picture of a preferable future, a church where everyone is serving according to giftedness for the glory of Christ Jesus. So what if God's people caught a vision for what the church is to be? What if our leaders began to train congregations in the biblical mission and develop the philosophy around that? What could be accomplished for Christ if each member saw his life as an instrument to be used in carrying out the Great Commission? And then I have this story about Howard Schultz, the founder of Starbucks. And as you read that, you'll see that Howard Schultz bought this what was small company out of Seattle because he, Howard Schultz, sold kitchen implements, kitchen utensils, out of New York, and he found this little outfit in Seattle, kept ordering a bunch of stuff from him. And he wanted to see who they were. 
So he took a trip out there. And when he went there, his testimony is these were the most passionate people that I have ever seen about anything. They were focused on one thing, and that is making the best cup of coffee possible. He was so impressed with their commitment and with the product they had developed, he bought the company. That's how excited they were about coffee. And the analogy is, what if we were that excited about the mission? And you had people who invested themselves, time, talent, and treasure, in the advance of the mission, the way those people were invested in the best cup of coffee and, frankly, making money. Right? The mission, therefore, laid out by Jesus is to make decisions considering first and foremost what effect it will have on the church and our mission of building disciples. I use our mission, our mission, very intentionally. For it's not written of the pastor, it's, it's not the mission of the pastor to build disciples. Neither is it the mission of the committed, it is the mission of us all. Now, uh, I was asked a good question after last week's time together. Uh, a few good questions. One of them was, okay, I'm seeing that the church is central to what God is doing in His world. And if I'm going to make God-honoring decisions, I've got to see how He's equipped me to help advance that. The church is central, but you know, there are a lot of Christian organizations out there that are not, are not churches that are doing good work. And so the question I was asked is, what about these non-church entities out there that are doing good work for Jesus, but they're not churches. If the church is central to what God's doing, where do these other organizations fit? And there are all kinds of them. The Navigators, you guys are familiar with that? They put out discipleship material. But the Navigators is a discipleship organization. It's not a church. It's not under the auspices of a church. Child Evangelism Fellowship puts out children's material, does backyard uh, Bible clubs during the summer. Uh, they have uh, Bible clubs that they do at schools. We're using some of their material for our midweek program for our kids. Uh, Awana is not a church-run organization. You've got all kinds of these things, okay? And they're very good and helpful organizations. So where do they, where do they fit in? Those are called para-church organizations. Para means beside. And they are church, they are organizations that come alongside the church to aid the church in its mission. So my answer to that question, what about then para-church groups is, para-church groups are great as long as they aid the church in moving forward in its mission. It's possible for para-church groups to become in competition with the church. But it doesn't have to be that way. And most of them that I talk to, and I've talked to the Awana people, and I've talked to the Child Evangelism Fellowship people, and the Bible Studies Foundation people, and most of them don't want to be in competition with the church. They want to aid the church. So when I pound the centrality of the church, I'm doing that because that's what the Bible presents. And then anybody who can aid the church and help the church and come beside the church to do that I thank Jesus for that, okay? So Healing Hearts would be an example of that as well, something Sharon's involved in. All right, 
So I want to make sure before we leave then that we understand that the church is central to God's mission. Then we'll be able to pull the facts of life together, bottom of page 10 into page 11, for us to then say, well, then how am I going to make decisions in life? If you have your Bible, look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Excuse me, chapter 3. Verse 14, Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now notice what the church is called. God's family, God's household. The pillar and foundation of the truth. Now that's heady stuff, isn't it? So this thing that he's talking about, the church, is really important. It's God's household, God's family, and it's the pillar and foundation of the truth. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Now that might raise a question in some of your minds. Because you may know that in the Bible, the word church is used two ways. The word church, English word that's translated from ekklesia, the Greek word. Ekklesia just means ek, out, we get exit. Ek, kaleo is call. Ekklesia is called out. People who have been called out of the world and to God. Into the body of Christ. That's the church. And ecclesia is used 119 times in your New Testament. And some of those 119 times, it is used of the body of Christ, universal, every person in the world at all times who have been called out of the world in salvation through Jesus and are therefore part of the body of Christ. So sometimes in Scripture, it's used that way. Other times in Scripture, it is used of people who are part of that larger body of Christ, but who have been called together at a time and place in a locale, a local church, to band together to carry out God's work. Now, of the 119 times that the word ecclesia is used, 99 refer to the local church. People in a locale at a time and place carrying out... 99. So here you've got God's household, the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church is called that in 1 Timothy 3.15. So is that referring to the universal body of Christ or is it referring to a church in a locale? Is it one of the 99? Well, context is going to have to tell you that. And what's the context? Verse 14 says, I am writing you these things so that if I am delayed. I'm writing you what things? It's the stuff he just wrote. And what stuff did he just write? If you back up from verse 14. In fact, if you go all the way back to chapter 2, verse 1, many of your Bibles will have a heading that says rules for worship or instructions for worship. You guys see that? That heading above chapter 2? 
And then it goes on from chapter 2 and verse 1 to give instructions about what's to happen in worship. First of all, prayers are to be made for kings and all those in authority. You guys see that? Chapter 2, verse 1. But then you come down to verse 9 and it begins to talk about the role of women in the church. And then you come to chapter 3, verse 1, if anyone desires the office of an overseer, that's a synonym for pastor, he desires a good work. Verse 2, now an overseer must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, and it goes on to give qualifications for those who would be leaders in the church. All the way down to verse 7. Verse 8, deacons likewise. And then it gives qualifications for deacons. Then you come to verse 11, deacons' wives. Four qualifications for deacons' wives. Verse 12, come back, we come back to, and 13, we come back to deacons again. And that brings you full circle to verse 14 where we started. I am writing you these things so that if I'm delayed, people will know how to conduct themselves in God's household. So what is God's household? The church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth? It's this place where people gather to worship, chapter 2. It's the place where we need to know our various roles, including the role of women, end of chapter 2. It's the place where we have to recognize and ordain and commission leaders, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, pastors, and deacons, verse 8 and following, and deacons' wives. And I'm writing you this thing so you'll know how it's supposed to go in God's household. So in verse 15 of 1 Timothy 3, is that referring to a local assembly or the universal body of Christ? Well, it is unequivocally, without question, there is no other way to see that other than a local assembly of believers that has pastors and deacons and gathers together for worship. And the local church is called God's household. The church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, you've been called, if you know Jesus, you've been called to be a member of that. And you've been called to be a productive member of that. We are going to see that he has gifted each of us uniquely and brought us together to use those gifts and abilities now to advance the mission for which he established the church on earth. So that's what your life's to be about. That's what my life's to be about. In whatever capacity we do that, whether, you're, whether your work outside is as an accountant or as a salesman or as a housewife or whatever it is, our lives together are to be centered around using the time, talent, and treasure Jesus has given us in order to advance his mission through his church. And that's why on page 10 then, we list the facts of life. I'll give you the first one. I'll, I'll, you know what? I'm going to give you the all four, and then we'll quit, and I'll explain them next week. Four facts of life. First one is this. Purpose determines life. That is, how I see my purpose is going to determine how I order my life. 
Fact number two, page 11. God has given you a mission. He's given all of us a mission. Fact number three. God has prepared you to accomplish the mission. And then fact four, God has placed you in the mission. Purpose determines life. God has given you a mission. God has prepared you to accomplish the mission. And God has placed you in the mission as well. Now, we'll go through each of those next week. Let's thank the Lord for the day and ask Him to go with us this week. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to learn of You, to look into Your words, to see the work that You're doing in Your world and how we fit into that. Lord, because we have Your Spirit, because You have changed our values, You've reprioritized our lives, Lord, we are people who no longer want to live simply for ourselves. We want to advance Your glory in Your world. And we see it as a grand privilege to be used of You in furthering Your work. And so, Lord, we thank You for this instruction from Your Word about what that mission is and the fact that You have equipped each of us to be an active part of it. Help us to ponder this then this week. Help us to cherish this this week, that we have a purpose now that lasts forever, that right now counts forever because we're involved in your work. And then next week, help us, Lord, as we seek to clarify what it means to center our lives around the work that you've given us together. Go with us this week. Grant us safety and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.